have you all here today, and uh, it seems like everybody kind of decided to get back in the swing of things today, which is great, and, I, and I'm really happy for it that it's today because, you know, <clears throat> today's message, uh, it, it's, it's, not, it's not meant to be a hard message, but it's probably going to wind up being that way just simply because of the content, and, you know, we've been in chapter, uh, we've been in Proverbs forever, and in chapter 31 was the chapter that we were all kind of looking for and all you know, especially when we got into uh, the virtuous woman aspect. There's so many incredible different parallels to that. And, you know, I, I knew that as far as I am concerned, and, you know, everything in Proverbs, everything I've said, uh, along with everything that I've done in my life uh, in the ministry, comes down to the single verse that I'm going to preach to you today. And... Uh, you know, I would ask, beg your indulgence that if things get a little personal today, um, you know, um, it's, it's, this is a, probably an unlike any other message that I've ever preached to you, simply because of where this one originates and starts from and where it obviously winds up. So you remember last week, we looked at verses 14 and 15, and what an incredible two verses uh, they were. Uh, the importance of our ministry uh, to our own household first. And we saw, you know, that where it talked about that she gave meat to her household and a portions to her maiden. And I've talked about the relationship and really what that meant and how that really, uh, you know, uh, plays out in what we should be doing. We talked about her rising while it is yet night, and we looked at the nighttime being the church age and uh, this virtuous woman being a picture of you and me and our relationship with Christ, our work during uh, the church age. It talked about how that she brought her food from a far country, and we talked about that being the Word of God, the supernatural gift that God has given to us and brought to us from a far place, and our household uh, being the number one uh, ones who we give that to first. And, you know, and the great reality check of life we talked about, which is the judgment seat of Christ, that the fact that someday we're all going to stand and we're going to give a, can account for what we did with what God did has done for us. You know, winning uh, the world to Christ and, uh, you know, going out and doing everything that we do. But in reality, you know, our, our kids winding up in the lake of fire and many times our grandkids. You know, Billy Sunday was a great preacher. And I certainly wouldn't, stand here and take anything away from whatever he did and what God did. He was a tremendous impact in our country when it needed it the most. Years after his death, his wife was interviewed and talked about, you know, his life and what he did. And her, her reality to the thing was the fact that he <clears throat> was a great preacher and one probably responsible for, for millions and millions of people to Christ. But she said that as far as she knew that her boys and her family was lost without Christ. And, you know, you look at that and you, you think of the tragedy of that, how that we can be out trying to win the world to Christ, doing everything that we do, but uh, the devil's sneaking in the back door and you're losing your own family. And <clears throat> I know that we're all on different levels here, and we talked about this last week, and none of these messages are designed to make anybody feel bad or, 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 or anything, but they're a reality check. But I won't tell you something. If, 
if you have your kids and they love the Word of God and they're in church with you and they love God and they love you and they're in your family, you ought to hug them this afternoon and thank God for that. And, uh, but for sure, all of us need a reality check to keep our perspective and to, and to keep us honest. You know, in our church, one of the burdens that I feel so incredibly impressed uh, upon me is all the young couples in our church, all the young singles. You know, uh, and someday you singles will find the, the love of your life and you'll get married and you'll have kids and you'll have a family. And it's my desire that you train those kids up and bring them up that they are part of God's program of your family ministering together. And uh, not fractured, not, not separated, not broken, not dysfunctional, but families working together, understanding that that's God's process for reaching out and, and, uh, and getting the world. And, uh, you know, and you, you Christians that have come in, like we talked about last week, when you got here, your kids were half, mostly grown and they were all beginning to have some problems. And it doesn't matter. It, you know what? It's a thing where uh, we, we work together. Nobody will ever be against you here. You may be against us or you may be against whatever God wants you to do, but on my end, I'm always here for you, no matter what it may take. Problem is sometimes when it gets down the road a ways, it takes some serious decisions to turn a situation or to deal with a situation. And many times, you know, parents won't do that. But as I said last week to you young couples, God guarantees to us that our children will be by our side in ministry. And those promises are as absolute as our guarantee for our own salvation. I mean, he said in Titus chapter 1, verse 2, in hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised before the foundation of the world. That is true. But it's just as true as train up a child in a way he should go, and when he was old, he will not depart from it. And the counter to that is train up a, don't train up a child in a way he'll go. And it's just simply my burden for you. And I know, you know, you probably get sick of hearing it. I know, you probably think, why don't you get on to something else? And I'll tell you why, because the future of this church is not me. The future of this church is you and your family. And uh, I just, you know, I just want to, I, I want to do everything I can uh, to, uh, to get you to the point where your children become part of that. And we have a you know, there's a mindset in Christianity today, you know, that guys will get out there and they'll do everything in the world to win people to Christ and they'll take those promises and those principles and they'll, they'll really preach them. But when it comes to the principles and the promises of their own family, you never hear anything about it. Now, we live in a Christian world today that God's people like to pick and choose what they want to believe and what they want to do. And here, we don't do that. Here, to the good or the bad, we preach the whole counsel of God. And uh, we lay it all out. You know, all my ministry, I've seen parents that, uh, that have lost their kids. And um, yet mom and dad wanted to portray to everybody in the church that uh, they were great teachers, great ministers. Many of them were deacons or they were on an elder board or that some of them were pastors. And they, 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 gave the, they wanted to give the appearance that everything in their life was great, and they focused on everything except their children. When I first came to Kansas City in November of 1976, that's before most of you were born, 
And, uh, you know, I came here in, in November of 1976, and I got hired to be a youth pastor. And uh, I'll, I'll never forget, you know, uh, that we had our first camp uh, that we had was down at a place called Beth Avon. And remarkably, and I love this, some of the original people that were with me back then are, are here today. Robbie, you were part of that. Um, uh, Eddie, Eddie back there. Eddie, you were there. Uh, Penny was down as a counselor. And uh, Steve Brackeen was there. Uh, I remember him because we had him in Hawk most of the time that he was there. <laughs> Troy was there with me. And so you know what I'm saying is true. I'm not just making this up. I'll be honest, a lot of things I preach, I do make up, but this is not one of them. <laughs> You're not a good preacher if you don't. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. And, and, uh, and, and it was anybody else that was there then that, uh, that I missed? I don't want to miss anybody. I think that's probably the, the deal. But, I mean, you remember those days, remember? Uh, down there at old Beth Eden, right outside of Lebanon, Missouri, off Highway 44, you know, I mean, we got some stories to tell. Oh, where's uh, Meredith at? Where's, uh, where's Meredith? Meredith, your mom was one of the first, uh, Anita was one of the first counselors down there uh, that worked with uh, Penny and all of that. And, you know, and Mel Sabaka preached. And I know that many of you know Mel. You've heard him preach. Some of you don't. But if you ever heard, if you ever, you can still find him online. But he was an incredible preacher. And, uh, you know, he's the Apostle Paul of my life. He's the, you'll talk about it a little bit later. He, he really made the difference in my life when I got right with the Lord. And so I had Mel come out and preach the first camp. And that first camp, we must have had about 120 kids. Everybody from the church. I was the new guy on the block. I had put a camp together. All the parents were excited. So they all got their kids to go to camp. And we had a great camp down there. And by the time Wednesday hit, we came home on Friday, but Wednesday night the camp broke, and by Friday night when we come back, half the kids in that camp had gotten saved. Now, you would think that that's a great thing, but the problem was that all those kids were the kids of the deacons, the Sunday school teachers, the pastors, and all of the leadership of the church that were supposedly had their families in order and everything was fine. And uh, I mean, you'd think they were happy that their kids got saved, but they weren't. Oh, no, they, they, they were quite upset about it. Uh, they had to now deal with the fact that they're a teacher, they're a deacon, they're a finance committee member, they're on the board of whoever or whatever, and uh, they're up there, and many of them were from Calvary Bible College and, and teaching there in Sunday school because it was a very large church. And uh, now suddenly they felt like they were exposed and they were embarrassed. And I remember, and by the way, that started the beginning of my battle for the next 40 years. And I, I remember thinking at that point in time, what parent in their right mind would have been okay with their kids just going on and winding up in hell as long as their status remained the same? And that was the way it was. And, and to a certain degree, that's the way it always is. I've told you many, many times, <clears throat> you know, back in the book of Judges, a chapter 11 and 12, you have the story of Jephthah. <clears throat> in fact, our little gal from England, you know, made a reference to that on the chat the other day about something that I had preached a while back on Jephthah. 
And Jephthah is a judge of the nation of Israel. He's one of the judges. And Jephthah is a great picture <coughs> of most fathers today in Christianity. Jephthah is responsible for killing his own daughter. And when you read the story, it's one of the most bizarre stories you're ever going to read in the Bible. But yet, <coughs> all of the, in fact, Judges has a bunch of them, but you put all of those into perspective of the last chapter and about the last verse in Judges where it says there was, that there was no king in Israel and every man was doing what was right in his own eyes. If there's ever a book that mirrors where we're at in America today, it's the book of Judges. Do you know what's wrong in this country with the political system, the justice system? The, the race riots and all of the protesting that's going on, the, the injustices that are done to everybody. Do you know what the problem is? Do you know what the problem is with the oppression that, that if you're not feeling yet, you're going to be feeling in, a, in not too long? I'll tell you what's wrong with America. America is the book of judges. There's no king in America. When I talk about a king, I'm talking about authority, King James 1611 authorized version, and everybody's just doing what's right in their own eyes. And in Judges, that brought upon anarchy, and today we're seeing the seeds of not a full-blown anarchy of everybody just doing their own thing. Anyway, Jephthah is one of these big-time spiritual guys who are like so many fathers that were back in my day that he is used of God, and he's always shooting his mouth off. He's a big-time blowhard who always just wants to let everybody know how spiritual he was. And he is the judge of Israel, and he was going to lead Israel into a battle. And he says up there, he says to God before everybody, Lord, if you give me the victory today, I promise you the first thing I see when I come back to my house, I will offer up as a sacrifice to you. And so he goes, and he wins the battle, and he comes back home. And you know the first thing he sees? It's his own daughter. So you know what he did? He offered his own daughter as a sacrifice. He killed her. Now, he gave her some time to, you know, bewail her virginity and, uh, you know, the fact that she was never going to marry, she was never going to have kids. And when you look at the story, I want to tell you something right now. This kid was a good kid. She was much smarter than her father, but she was obedient to her father. He actually killed her. He actually killed his own daughter. And, and you know, and the, and, the, and the great part about it is, or not maybe the great part, but the, uh, the incredible part of it is that, that he did not have to do that. In the Bible in Leviticus chapter 5, verse 4 and 5, the Bible is very clear that if you make a stupid vow that you shouldn't have made, if you shoot your mouth off and say something that you shouldn't say, and now you're committed to it, Leviticus chapter 5, verse 4 and 5 tells you how to get out of it. He could have gotten out of that vow if he wanted to, but oh, no, 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 no. His pride, his arrogancy, who he was, he could not go back on the very words of his mouth, even though they were the stupidest words. I was going to say that probably ever came out of his mouth, but that's probably not true. It was one of the long series words that came out of his mouth that were stupid. But you know what? The Jephthahs didn't die out in the book of Judges. And I've seen parents today who just in the same way spiritually will kill their kids just like he did. And then, oh, scholarship. All the great scholarship. They can't just, 
they, all the great minds that want to correct the Bible, they just can't imagine how that God would allow this to happen. So the guys with the PhDs, the Greek and the Hebrew guys, they all come up with the fact, well, he didn't really kill his daughter, but he, he killed a chicken. And if you went to some major Bible college someplace and they covered this story here in the book of Judges, they would tell you that he really didn't kill his daughter, but he sacrificed a chicken. And I'm okay with that. Colonel Sanders would be too. But the bottom line is this. My problem is when I get into those two chapters, <coughs> it's just really hard for me seeing a chicken walking up and down in the mountains bewailing her virginity. And the attack today is going to be on your family. And the great tragedy today is, uh, in my mind, for this church. And I'm not responsible for the world. I'm really not. I'm responsible for what God gave me here, which you'll see in a little bit. And my, my mindset is not one more child, not losing one more child. I know that when camp had to, I knew camp was going to get squashed. I knew that it was, and I... I told the guys, I said, we do whatever we got to do. I don't care. I don't care what we got to do. These guys are innovative enough. There's enough great minds in this church that are way past mine that you'll come up with some. It'll be a great success. Got a few little glitches to work through, but you know what? It'll be okay. And I'm doing it and want to do it the way we're going to do it simply because our kids need it. And we cannot go a year without having an impact into these people's lives, these children's lives that we are entrusted with that are your kids. And because uh, I'm telling you right now, the attack today is going to be on your family. I have spent 17 years in this church now, 17 years training you as singles. Many of you were singles uh, back then, and now you're couples. You older parents who have come in or who were with me uh, from the very beginning, you know. Uh, and uh, we, I've tried to help you understand this incredible concept of not losing your household. The fact that God planned to reach the world as families. And I've always been ready to help anybody. I've never refused anybody. There's always something you can do. It may not always be the easiest thing or the most convenient thing, but I'm telling you, I've always been ready, and there's always ready to establish a plan. The issue will never be uh, the problems with your kids. The issues will always be the Jephthahs of life, and I'm just telling you that. It'll always be the deacons and the preachers and the people back in 1976. It probably was 77 at that point in time. And for the most part, what I've tried to do has worked. We've had child training classes. We've got several books on it back there. I don't know how many times we've been through it. We've done everything we can to do to try to help you. I'm here for you. And, and, I, and I, I watch you with your kids. I watch you giving meat to your household. I watch how good your kids respond. <clears throat> You know, and it only makes, on the total package of our church, it only makes you more invaluable what I'm trying to do here. You know, as you give your portion to your family, in time we spread out and we give, uh, you know, we give a portion to the people that we're working with. And your kids show it, or they don't show it, but your kids show it one way or the other. And I see so many of you 
you know, getting to the place where they're coming into your 14, 15, 16, 13, whatever, and it's obviously that you're being molded in the right way. This is why I like to have, when we do the announcements, I like to recognize what the kids do. I think it's important. In most churches, the pastor is so important, so important to himself and doing all the other things and chasing the people who got all the money, and the kids just get lost in a shuffle. That will never happen here. These kids are as important to me as they are to you, and they may be yours biologically, but they're mine spiritually, and I have a responsibility as a pastor not only to them but to you to tell you the truth and to help you wherever it, it goes from here. And, uh, you know, you got to remember, and I say this all the time, uh, our kids are, are nothing more than a reflection of who we really are spiritually. You know, we get the idea that, uh, and I tell people all the time, you never look at a man's ministry or what he appears to be in his ministry. Got to look deeper in that. Because I've learned from way back in 1977 that that's not always true. Uh, you know, the Lord said it back there in, in Samuel where he said, you know, that man looketh on the outward appearance, but God looketh on the heart. And you never look at what a man's ministry uh, or, or to others appear to be. I always look at his children because his children will reflect what his true relationship with God is. And that's why the Bible says you give meat to your household first. And I know Proverbs chapter 31 is, is a tough chapter because, uh, you know, and everybody wanted to get there because you thought we were going to all put lace in our underwear and run around as a virtuous woman. Now you know that's not true. It's a deep inside look of what we should be as God's bride. And unfortunately today, it's, it's only going to get a little worse. Maybe next week will be better, but today is going to be a rough one. I'm not planning on it to be that way, but uh, it's, it, it's, it's where it is. Now, I know this. I'm not such a stupid person, though I am pretty stupid in some things. I know I can't fix it all. I can't. That doesn't mean I wouldn't like to. doesn't mean I don't have the answers that we could. But I know that's not a reality. So what I have to do is I take one person, one couple at a time, and I help you put a plan together to get everything the way it needs to be for uh, the way that God wants it to go, your family. And, uh, you know, one of the greatest studies in the Bible, one of the greatest things that parents can do who find themselves in a situation is found in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 16, where he talks about redeeming the time. One of the great aspects of God in our relationship with him that time lost is never really time lost because he will allow you to redeem the time that was lost. And that's a great concept. The problem is sometimes what you've got to do to accomplish that. And, uh, you know, it's a thing where I've talked many, many times about the five stages that you train your child in as you bring them up. And that you, you, you compositely build on the last one and tie them all together. And you go through those five stages that bring them from the time they're born or very young right up to the time they're, you know, 18 or 19 and they're well established. And I've, I've brought you through that so many times. But at the same time, you say, well, I've lost mine. Mine ain't around. Okay, how do I, what do I do? But at the same time, listen to me. There's five things that you can do to regain them if you have lost them. And it's just simply the fact there's always something you can do. The problem is, like it was back in 1977, it can be embarrassing for people. 
it can be embarrassing for people who want to put out there that look what I'm doing for the Lord, but your own family is in a mess. And it takes a humbleness. It takes somebody coming to the end of that and realizing that that may be great and praise the Lord for that, but the real ministry has to be focused on the household. And that's what I try to help people do. I never, I, I, I never look bad at people. Um, I, I, never, I never look at people and think that they're, they're you know, that they're terrible people. I, I try to look at people and understand through their mistakes that the tragedy is, I think, even though you may not think it about yourself, I think you're better than that. There wasn't a person, a guy, a gal, whatever, who didn't do what was right and walked away from God, didn't do what's right with whatever, that in my heart I didn't think that's a terrible person. I never thought, well, that's a jerk or, or an idiot. I always thought to myself, you know what? The tragedy here is they're better than that. They know better than that. And you try to help people where they're at. Now today, I want to preach on what I consider to be my life verse for ministry. And I don't, I, I don't mean to make this such a personal thing, but I, I don't know how else to do it. Um, all through the 31 chapters of Proverbs and every aspect, this verse I knew was coming. And this verse has always been on my mind. This is my verse for building a, a church. It's all, it's all my verse for building people. And many times we think that the church and people are two different things, and that's not true. No, it's not true. The old thing, and here's the church, there's the steeple, open the door, and there's all the people. I mean, it's just that simple. The church is people. This building here means nothing without you being in it. Uh, it's, it's, it's you being here that makes the church, the body of us meeting together. And uh, for almost 50 years now, uh, this verse has been the single verse that, that I've never lost sight of. I, I believe this verse is so vitally important that uh, men not seeing it today and understanding it, I, I would say that this would be the reason for the failure of churches in Christianity today. I, I, I would see it as the failure for families. I would see it as the fam failure of, for ministry. I would see it as pastors try to build a church and don't understand this concept. This is why churches fail. This is why pastors fail. Pastors look at themselves as just hireling somebody that gets up and, you know, you know, social distancing is not a new thing to Baptist preachers. They've distanced themselves from their people for many, many, many years. And uh, you can't build a church that way. It's the reason why missions have failed. And as far as I'm concerned, and we support a number of missions and uh, missionaries, and we have them come through. And I try to look for good guys, uh, but I'm just telling you, missions has failed miserably today, and this is the reason why here. It's the reason for everything. You know, if there ever was one single reason for the failure of modern-day Christianity, it's found in this very verse that I want to speak to you about today because it shows God's people and their attitude toward the work that God started in them. Now, I want to begin today. We're just going to look at one verse, and it's verse 16. And I want to take it, and I want to simply break it down into two natural divisions that we have here. 
And uh, I, I, I just want to look at it for a little bit. And it's found in verse Proverbs 31, 16. And it says, She considereth a field and buyeth it with the fruit of her hand. She planteth a vineyard. Um, I'd like, uh, Sean, where are you at? Pastor Sean, where, where are you at? Would you stand up? You know, this family has come into our church and with a couple of other families. And you got to get to know them. They are wonderful people. And he is our kind of guy. And he loves the book. He loves the Word of God. And I know he loves me. There wasn't hardly a week go by that he doesn't send me a text thanking me for the message. And not that I need that, but I just want you to know that, that uh, he and his family, his wife, and he's got great kids. And, uh, you know, and you're sitting in good company because you're sitting with Jim Darascovich right down there, and he's another one. And, uh, and so would you ask God's blessing on the sermon this morning? Thank you, brother. Now, as I said, I, I ask your permission today to, uh, <clears throat> to teach you this verse from my own personal experience. Sometimes to grasp such a verse as this, you have to look deep inside the guy who's preaching it. And, and you know, and um, you have to just see and understand what motivates somebody. It's, it's important, I think, to see and understand the reason behind somebody's intensity, the reason behind somebody's urgency, and the reason why he is the way that he is. And we already know that we're building everything we're looking at around Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, where it says that he hath begun a good work in you and will perform it under the day of Jesus Christ. That goes without saying. It, it, that verse kind of threads its way through everything that we're doing here. Now, uh, the first part of verse 16, there's two key words, and I want you to see this. And the first one word is a field, and the second one is the phrase, buyeth it. Now, in Matthew chapter 13, you have the famous parable of the sower. And in verse 38 of that parable, it will tell you, and it talks about a sower going out and, and sowing seed in the field. And it tells us in verse 38 that the field there that he's talking about, we're now told, is the world. And the idea is, is that Christ came and sowed the seed of the Word of God to the world. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Uh, you know, God bought the world. He bought the field with His own blood. 1 John chapter 4, verse 14 says that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20 says that you and I are not our own. We've been bought with a price. So it's very clear that, that Christ came down to buy the world, and he died for the world. And he bought the world. He bought that field with his own blood. And as we've come through chapter 31 so far, we have 
we have looked at four great truths and built on them as we have come through it. The first one, obviously, was in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, that God began a good work in us. And then we, we understood the next great principle that we are now God saved us so we would finish that work that he started. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Today, as a child of God, being saved and understanding all this stuff, we should be walking in those good works that he started in us. The third thing was our attitude toward the work that's vital. Uh, as uh, not doing him good, uh, doing him good, but not evil, uh, being willing and seeking uh, the work of our hands with wool and flax, and we talked about all of that. Our, and then the fourth thing was our rising while it is yet night, the church age, you and me, the time we're living in right now, rising while it is yet night, and uh, and feeding our household and family first, and then what. Many of you do so well taking a portions to the people, the maidens, that God brings to us. And now, when it comes to us buying the field, uh, the first thing I want you to, uh, in your attention, that in verse 13, it talks about the field being the world. But in Proverbs chapter 31, it doesn't say the field, it says a field. God never intended for me to buy the whole world. He did that. But when I got saved, when you got saved, and we begin that process of growth in our life, what God intended for us to do through walking through the works is to consider a field. And here's the key to all we have learned in this chapter so far. God never asked me or my family to buy the whole world. But he did ask us to consider a field and then buy it. And for me and my family, and I can't speak for you, but for me and my family, that field will be Kansas City. And yet, even though God never asked me to buy the whole world, and he asked me to consider a field and then buy it, here's the key. When I do decide and consider and buy it, Kansas City, then I buy it with all the intensity that God had when he bought the field. Did you ever stop and consider what if God would have bought the world the same way that most of us look at buying what God has for us? What if God took as much time to get you saved as you'd take to try to figure out if you want him in your world or not? What if God came down when he died on the cross and he just kept putting it off like you do getting right with God or getting to church or getting in the Bible because it just didn't have the right feeling? You see, when he came down and he died on the cross, when you read it and you see it and you understand it, when he came down and bought that field, there's an intense level there that is unparalleled anywhere in the history of the world. And if you want to know today what's wrong with me, I'll tell you what's wrong with me. It's what's not wrong with you. And as a fact, when I got saved many, many years ago, I just simply never got over it. 
the intensity burning inside of me of what God had done based on what he did for me was overwhelming. And I, I can't imagine in my life, I can't speak for you. I can't imagine, and I do, I do a lot of stupid things, and I do most of my life is wrong, and I'm just telling you, I just, I'm just whacked out as you could ever be. But the bottom line is this. There'll never be a day, no matter whether I'm in fellowship or out of fellowship or out wherever, there'll never be a morning that I don't get up or a night that I go to bed that I don't understand the intensity that he had on the cross, and that's exactly what he wants me to have. My field, my household is Kansas City. Uh, allow me to tell you a, a, a story here. And I'm, this is the best way I know how to get this across to you. Last week I told you about when I got right with the Lord, about 1971, right after my father's death. And I told you last week about Tommy Thomas preaching and dying in the pulpit and Mel Sabaka's college and career single class. And I had just gotten home from the Army. In fact, I was still in my uniform, and I was sitting back there. When that man died that day, his last three questions before he went home to be with the Lord was, are you ready, as he died of a heart attack. And he was preaching on the second coming of Christ. I told you this last week. And as far as I am concerned, nobody will ever convince me different that when he died the last time before he hit the thing and he pointed out, and it was obvious that he mustered all the strength that he had for one final yell, are you ready? And he, as far as I'm concerned, he was looking at me. And I knew I wasn't ready. That was the catalyst, along with my dad dying, that really God used to bring me back where I needed to be. And at that point, I told you the story about my mom and me going down the next week, you know, my life changed. Now, if you haven't figured this out about me yet, I'm a guy who's either all in or all out. I have no middle ground in my life. On Friday, I was working at the Hoover Company and I was just like everybody else there. And I was doing all the things that they were. And that Sunday night when I went and got right with God, I knew me. And I went into the Christian bookstore in that church and I got me a little pocket New Testament and I got me a fistful of tracts. And I went to work the next morning and the first thing I did at the time clock is gave my testimony to all those guys and said, I ain't the same and you may not understand it. Gave every one of them a tract. And you know what? Because I knew I had to do that because if I didn't bust a hole in that thing right there, I'd have chickened out. And so I just made a biggest, biggest mess out of it as I could because I knew me. And I knew that once that I did that, I'd never go back. I, I, I just wouldn't. I, I, I just couldn't. And so I blew a hole wide into the thing. And like I said, I'm a guy that uh, there's no middle ground. And, uh, you know, and, and I'm either in or I'm out. But when I am in, look out. Because I, I have an intensity level that I don't apologize for because it's not my own. It's because I understand what he did for me. I, I tolerate them. I love them. I'll help them. I'll be whatever I can be to them. I'll never snub them and never not be there. But I have a tough time with middle-of-the-road people. I'm just telling you. 
I, I, I love them. I'd do anything in the world for them. If it would, you know, whatever I could do, I would do it I'd to bring you alongside. But I'm just telling you. And I guess all guys are, that are, in, or anybody who's intense like that, I just, I love the intensity. And I love people around me who feel that intensity that, that you know what, no matter what happens, no matter, no matter what virus hits, no matter what we will never stop and we will never quit because of the intensity that we have. And I'll be the first to tell you, my life has been a journey and through a process, and I have made my share of mistakes, man. When I got right with God, I didn't know anything. And I had no idea what God had for me. I mean, I know. You look at me and you think when I come out of my mother's womb, I had a King James Bible and was preaching the next weekend. Actually, it was about two months after that. But that's not true. I was just like you. I was just like you. In fact, I see myself in so many of you. I was just like you. I didn't have a clue. I didn't know what God wanted me to do. I, I, I just know I wanted to do something. I was 21 years old, and my life had been all about me up to that point in time. And suddenly... The lights came on, and I just wanted to do whatever God wanted me to do. And it was either that or I wasn't going to do anything because I can't be in the middle. And then God put a man in my life. My favorite verse in the Bible over there, one of them is the one today because I'm preaching on it, but it'll be a different one tomorrow. It says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. God always uses a man. And if your permission, I've altered that verse a little bit for my own personal life, and there was a man sent from God whose name was Melchizedek. And God put a man in my life. You know, God never expects you to figure it all out for yourself. God will always put a man in your life. He'll always put somebody in your life. It should be originally your mom and your dad, but that doesn't work. God's going to put a man in your life. The great example of that is Paul with Timothy, Paul with Philemon, Paul with Titus. And God knew what I needed, and he knew that I needed a structure, and I knew I needed somebody that was intense to keep my intensity on the, between the white lines because otherwise, you know, Lord knows I'd be up in the bell tower of Notre Dame chasing a hunchback. I, I, I had to have somebody lead me and guide me, and boy, God knew who I needed. And I want to tell you right now, he trained me hard. He was old school. And that's hard for a lot of people today. You kind of got to, and I don't like this, but I know it's just the way that we are. And some of you older guys, uh, I don't know Jimmy understands this, and Pastor Sean does, and so many of you guys, uh, Phil understands it. You know, John understands it. Steve understands it. You know, uh, John Hill. You you know what? I I hate, and I know you got to do it in this lackadaisical Laodicean age we're in. I hate tiptoeing around things. But I know you got to do that to a certain degree because people are so worthless today. <laughs> and I know the first law of public speaking is never speak down to your audience. And some of you sapheads will never understand that. But it's a thing where, you know, it's a, it's, it's, <laughs> it's a, 
He trained me hard. I'll never forget, I preached my first sermon. There was four or five hundred people there. And I'm going to town. This was my chance, my first sermon I ever preached. And I, 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 was, I was pumped. And I was going to town, and I quoted over there out of Genesis. And uh, I got over there, and it says, by the sweat of your, of your face you shall earn your bread. And when I was preaching, I quoted it wrong, and I, and I was just going to town. I mean, I was, I, was, I was waxing eloquently. And I was just going to town, and I said, by the sweat of your, by the sweat of your brow. And it, it, there was a little pause right there, just like it was now. And I heard this gigantic, booming voice that was about halfway back say, book, chapter, verse. And it was Mel. Now there's four or five hundred people here, and I'm really doing good. Why would you do that to me? <laughs> and so I said, what? He said, book, chapter, verse, son. So I said, okay, I'll show you. So I flipped over there to Genesis, and sure enough, it said, by the sweat of your face. And I said, it says by the sweat of your face. And he said, that's right. He says, young man, if you're going to preach the word of God, you quote it correctly. He did that in front of 400 people. (laughs) Now, you want to know why I'm the way I am? Do you? You can't do that to kids today. Why, in Little League or whatever you play, they don't even have any losers. Everybody's a winner. Nobody gets a trophy. It ain't going to work that way at the judgment seat of Christ, by the way. Uh, you know, but I mean, now, did I say, did I get mad? Did I say, well, I'm finding another church? Did I say, well, how dare he do that? You know, you know why? Because I've never forgot that when I stand in that pulpit to quote the Word of God correctly. You know, you can't train young men and young ladies like you used to be able to train them. If I do that, to, and, and very honestly, if I did it to William or Zach or Alex or some of you guys out there, you'd be fine with it. I mean, you, I, you know, you would be okay and you would take it and, you know, you'd burn my house down after I went to bed. <laughs> but, you know, that's just, and sometimes, honestly, this is the devil in me. Sometimes I will throw something out there at somebody just to see how they respond to it. Sometimes I'll hit somebody a little harder than maybe I normally would just to see if they, how they respond to it, to see what they're made of. And in nine times out of ten, they can't take it. They get their nose bent out of joint, they get mad, they get upset, and they come to the place where, you know, they just don't, uh, don't like it. When I was in the Army... We had a guy, his name was Staff Sergeant Webb. He was the meanest guy you ever met in your life. He was all military from top to bottom. He had three tours in Vietnam, and he was as tough as nails. He'd get, he was the training officer or sergeant in our platoon, and he'd get us all together, and we, what we would, we'd come to call the Webb Walk. And he'd make us grab the shoulder harness in front of the guy in front of you. And there's 200 guys now in a line. And then he set the pace for the walk. And it was, it was like this. 
And I cannot tell you when you're shackled to the guy in front of you and somebody behind you, 200 strong, how that wears you out to try to keep up. And he, we hated it. And every time he'd get in there and he said, all right, field gear on, out on the street, we knew what was coming. But what we really hated him for, every day, we have these paint buckets, you know, like your, your little galvanized buckets, and we'd fill them up with sand. And he'd have us stand there for an hour holding them buckets out like that. Obviously, you don't do that for an hour. In my case, it was 30 seconds and I'm out. <laughs> but he would walk up and down and say, get him up, get him up. He would just do every, back then they could still hit you. They don't hit you anymore. I run down the road one time and they had rifles. We had M14 that were port over your head and running down there and we were running like four or five miles and my arms were killing me. And I saw all the instructors up there in front of me, so I kind of lowered my down a little bit. I didn't see the instructor was behind me. He had his M14, and he butt-stroked me across the back of the head and knocked me down that dirty road. My rifle went one place, and my helmet went another place, and I just stayed in a puddle there for about 30 minutes. <laughs> and he'd have us hold them buckets out every day. And I'm telling you what, it got to the place where it, it, it got, it, it, and on the day before graduation, he had, we hated him. The day before graduation, he called us out, get your buckets. Ugh. But we all thought it's the last time. He said, put them down at your feet. We laid them down at our feet. He's walking back and forth and he says, I know you hate me. And he says, I know that you hate what we're doing here. And he started unbuttoning his shirt. And he took his fatigue shirt off and he pulled his green sweat uh, t-shirt off and when he faced us he had scars down across his chest and he says you hate me for me doing that don't you so let me tell you a story it was four years ago in the Waquam province when we got overrun one night and they were coming through the wire faster than we could do anything and we knew we were in trouble. And they said, I was covering the left flank and he says, I caught something out of my eye and when I looked over, a Viet Cong was coming at me with a sword. And he said, the only thing I had the time to do was turn around with my rifle and block that sword. And he said, the force coming down on my rifle was much more than I could hold off and he came down and he cut me across the chest here and there before my buddy shot him. He says, you don't like those buckets. You don't like holding them out. Well, you know why I do it? You know why I make you do that? Because you're going to leave here and most of you are going to go into combat. Most of you are going to go into Vietnam and you're going to be faced with a situation and I am never going to be responsible if somebody tries to cut you in half that your arms aren't strong enough to block it. Now we all loved him. You see, sometimes you have to understand the intensity behind something somebody does. Now, you may not figure it out, but it's for your own good. Years later, when Mel and I were driving someplace, we had been preaching together for years by that time. This was 10, 15 years later after all that. We'd always laugh about that, and he'd always tell people about it. We'd always laugh about it. And we were in a car that one day, and we were driving someplace, and I brought it up, or he brought it up, and he got real quiet, and he says, He says, you know, I saw something in you. We were both old army guys. He says, I saw something in you. I said, what are you talking about? He says, back in that day, 
when I did what I did? He says, I did what I did because I saw something in you. There was a toughness in you that I knew you could take it. There was a hardness in you that I knew that you could take it but needed to be developed. And I just did that because I wanted you to know that whatever I did to you then is going to be pale in comparison to what you're going to face when you get into the ministry. You know he was right? You see, sometimes you have to look deeper. But today in Christianity, it's so effeminate. All these young guys out there, they get their feelings fragile. They're like a little daisy. When the heat comes up a little bit, you just wilt and melt. So he trained me hard. He trained me to endure a hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And I failed many, many times. I don't want to pretend that I haven't. But I went to work. And for the next five years, I worked by his side. And I'm like young Samuel. I let none of his words fall to the ground. I realized there was a day that he was not going to be in my life. I realized a day that I was going to be totally on my own. And I was smart enough or dumb enough, however you want to paint it, that I wanted to learn everything I could for him while I had him. Because I knew there was a day that I wouldn't have him anymore. And I don't have him today. And I knew that God had put him in my life for a reason. Number one tragic mistake that most of God's people make is never, never forsake the man of God that he put in your life. Because he put him there for a reason. And then the crash. Oh, golly. It was about 1976. And I got the word that Mel Sabaka was leaving Canton, Ohio and was going to go to New York City to build a church. Now, him and I had talked about doing that for three or four years. But what had happened in the meantime is the recession of 1973, 74 had hit. And everything went sideways. Gas in that recession went to 75 cents a gallon. (laughs) Remember those days, Bob? It was 35 cents a gallon before that recession. Hard to believe, isn't it? Well, I lost my, I worked at the Hoover Company. It was a fork truck driver. You know those stories. But I lost my job. And I, I didn't have anywhere to go. And Barb's family had a, had a grocery business Laverne's Market, and her dad had sold it to her, her brother Tommy, who was a great guy. And Tommy said, hey, look, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a job. I'll take you to, I'll, I'll, I'll make, you, I'll make you, I need a produce manager. And he spent a lot of money sending me to, I mean, I know it would be hard to believe that there's a school for produce, but there is. <laughs> it's much like the minister. You've got to be able to discern the fruits from the vegetables. <laughs> And he sent me down a couple of places, and I actually worked for, for free. Well, he was paying me, but I, he sent me down to one of the premier uh, produce places in Kansas City, that uh, Frank's Produce, and they, they taught me everything I needed to know. And so I, I, he hired me and gave me a job. Now, 
they weren't really keen on us being Baptist anyhow. I mean, they've come a long way. But back in the day, you know, I don't think they were saved. I don't know where they were. And, uh, you know, it was a thing where, um, and I was pretty stupid back then. I got to tell you, I, you know, I, I, I remember one time, Tommy, if you're listening to this, don't, please don't take offense to him. But I was, I was listening to, I, he took me to a, a, a Easter prayer meeting uh, for a, a Thanksgiving prayer meeting, uh, Thanksgiving it was, Thanksgiving prayer meeting at this church, this e e Emmanuel uh, Evangelical Methodist of the High Priest uh, in, the, in the woods someplace church. And the pastor's name was Darling Dumb. Now, how'd you like to be a pastor? Pastor Dumb is so good to see you this morning. I mean, I can have some fun with that, but, but anyway. So it, it, it's one of these things where the main theme was we were ugly ducklings and God turned us into swans, that kind of thing, John, you know what I mean? And so, and, and so they're sitting around there. And this is where I got the idea because on the, they had a plate there, and on the plate was just three little, this is where I got it, three little pieces of corn, kernels of corn. And he wanted us to know that at the first Thanksgiving, this is all the pilgrims had. Which was, we got other stuff to eat, but that was his point, you know. Now, I tried that. Remember, kids? I tried that with us on Thanksgiving one time. Those things never worked with my kids. Remember, Cal? Remember? Three little pieces of corn, remember? Huh? I mean, they just, I think they thought it was just something that brewed off the thing, you know. I remember one time, I remember one time, Kelly wanted a new pair of shoes, and I, and I was trying to teach her a, a moral lesson, and I said, honey, you don't need a pair of shoes. You only have, I, 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 you only have two, two feet. And I said, you have plenty of shoes. I said, I want you to know, I saw a man just the other day that he had no feet. <laughs> and she looks at me and she says, well, then I'll take his shoes because he won't need them. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I, you've done a great job. I failed. <laughs> I failed. I failed. And so... The guy's there, Pastor Dumb, he, he says, let's, let's do this. Everybody write down today what you're thankful for on a three-by-five card. Fold it over, and we'll pass a basket, and you put them in, and I'll read them. And I'm thinking to myself, you have got to be kidding me. So I write mine down, put it in there. So he starts opening them up, and the first one says, I'm thankful for the flowers. We could have a little background music here. It would help. I'm, I'm thankful for the beautiful blue sky. Guy put in there, I'm thankful for, for life and the breath and for God. They open one up and it says, I'm thankful for the blood of Jesus Christ, God's son that cleanses me from all sin. That would have been mine. My brother, my brother-in-law, I could just feel him starting to shaking and shiver a little bit, you know. But see, I was trapped. I couldn't leave. After all, the, after all he did for me, after all that he gave me and all that he invested in me and gave me a job, as a testimony, now that Mel's leaving for New York, how do I just go in and do that? I'd, it'd be a terrible testimony to my family. I'm stuck. And Mel goes off to New York, and there I am, stuck in the miserable produce section. 
I mean, I'd get up on Monday morning and go to work and the lettuce would be wilted and I'd be trying to bring them back to life with cold water singing, revive us again. (laughs) It's just, and and I'm miserable. My heart is broken. The guy that God put in my life is gone and I'm stuck here. But I stayed faithful. And I trusted God that God knew what he was doing because I sure didn't know. I felt like that little kid that prayed and he said, Lord, bless mommy and bless daddy and and bless the dog and and bless my brothers and my sisters and take care of uh, everybody and and, uh, Lord, uh, just make sure that uh, my my brothers and my sisters are safe and Lord, I just thank you for all that. Please take care of that. Oh, and by the way, Lord, please take care of yourself because without you, we're shot. <laughs> that was it. And, uh, you know, so I stayed faithful. And then one night in November, <laughs> phone rings, Mel Sabaka's on the phone. He, al- he always started a conversation this way when he was going to, something was happening. He said, well, do you feel spiritual tonight? <laughs> and I said, yeah, I feel spiritual. He says, you want to go to Kansas City? I said, what are you talking about? He said, I just got a call from Truman Dollar. They're looking for a youth pastor out there, and he knows that I train guys up, and he says, I, I, I gave him your name. He's going to call you tonight. Uh, he says, so if you want to get in this thing, he says, here's the shot. And I, and, I, and, I, and I hung up the phone, and I'm stunned. And 15 minutes later, the phone rings, and it's Truman Dollar. And he said, we want to fly you out. We want to interview you. We want to think Mel will give you a high recommendation. And uh, he said, he, you've learned very well how to quote scriptures correctly. So we, uh, <laughs> you know, we, uh, we, we, and so I flew out. And it was a week before Thanksgiving because we had Thanksgiving dinner with the pastor and his family because he was going to the Holy Land, I think, the next week. And, and they, they hired me. They wanted to hire me. I'll tell you, I was never so confused in all my life. Finally, I didn't get to go to New York. Finally, I had now the opportunity that I always wanted. Now, what do I do with my brother-in-law? What do I do? And I told him that I was going to take accept it because I was walking out by faith, but I didn't know what that meant. They wanted me to fly out every every weekend and begin preaching till I got there, which I could do. So I'd sneak out and fly out uh, Saturday afternoon after work, preach, and then fly back Sunday night and be back at work and never never said anything to anybody. But I was saying, Lord, I don't know what to do. I was, as, I was as confused as many of you have been in your life. I really was. And uh, let me tell you, when God did something, the hand of God always moves through. I don't know how he found out, but about two weeks into it, my brother-in-law called me into his office, and he says, Bob, he says, uh, I, I got something to tell you. And I said, okay, what's that? He says, you're fired. I said, what? He says, you're fired. He says, hey. You've always wanted to be in the ministry. You've always wanted to do everything that God wanted you to do. I'm not going to let this job stand in the way of what God wants for you. He says, you're fired. 
go to Kansas City and do what God wants you to do. Couldn't believe it. You see, I didn't manipulate anything. I just simply waited on God. But I had bigger problems. I had a house I had to sell because I couldn't afford two house payments. And the house that we lived in on 1451 All Natanu is the one that I was born in. And it was a travesty. Uh, it, 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 nobody was going to buy it. And we put it up on the market. And I had to sell it. I only had, a, what, four weeks to sell it at Christmas time? Are you kidding me? And every time I'd get on a plane and I'd be sitting there waiting to go down the runway, I'd say, Lord, that house hasn't sold yet. It just hasn't sold. I said, I don't know. I don't, I'll do whatever you want me to do. I said, I, but it hasn't sold yet. The week before I was supposed to go and move out here, there was a guy who owned a realtor company in the Canton Baptist Temple. His name was John Bobinger. John came up to me and he says, Bob, I'm really happy you're going to Kansas City. He says, I know you haven't sold your house. It was listed with him, by the way. I know you haven't sold your house. He says, here's what I'm going to do. I don't want you under that burden. I'm buying your house from you. And it, I'll take care of it for you, and you're done with it. You don't have to worry about it. God came through again. So we had my ordination that night. They had a little reception for me, and we got the van loaded, and me and Jim Lake are going to drive out the next morning, and I hadn't told anybody, but I ain't got two nickels in my pocket. I got a full tank of gas, and I got 800 miles to go, and I don't have any money. And I'm just sitting there, and Harold Henniger came over to me and gave me an envelope, and he says, here, I know moving is tough. She says, here, here's a little something to help you, and I opened it up. It was exactly what I needed for gas to get to Kansas City. Then I faced another problem. Back then, when you hauled a U-Haul van from one state to another, if they had too many of them, you had to pay like $400 to drop it off. And, I, and, I, I, and it was said on there that Missouri is, is, is one where you're going to have to pay. So I'm thinking, now what am I going to do? So I got out here and took it up there the next morning, and it was right up on 350 Highway. The guy's still in business there. And I drove in there, and I said, hey, I just moved up here from Kansas City. I'm going into the ministry, and, you know, I'm going to be at the Kansas City Baptist Temple, and I, you know, I just I wanted to drop this off. And he, and he said, are oh, you going into the ministry? He says, I said, yeah. He said, you know what? He says, uh, um, you can believe this. He says, I got saved about six months ago. And he says, uh, he said I'm going to so-and-so's church. And he says, uh, uh, you just drop it off. We'll waive the $400. And there it was again. I'm telling you, when God did something, I, you hear me say it all the time, but you never really grasp it. God always pays for what he orders. He pays for what he orders. And when I finally got here, I'll never remember. You, know, who, you guys that work at Cerner over there on 87th Street, I know who, who all works over there. Let me see your hands. You all work over there? Okay, next time you go to work tomorrow, when I flew, flew into Kansas City to be interviewed, they put me up. Benjamin Stables used to be there. And there was a hotel there that's it's tore down now. Uh, it was a something, uh, it was whatever it was, big place. And that's where I stayed when I came in. And I'll never forget, I got up Sunday morning, it was cold, walked out on the deal, and, and some, I had, didn't know this at the time, but there, this is my first time in Kansas City. I still thought there was Indians out here, you know. <laughs> and and, and, and I'm, I've come out of that thing out there, and here comes, here comes three people riding right past the hotel on horses. 
they're from Benjamin Stables and they're just riding their horses. I didn't know that. I'm thinking, man, I like this place, man. This, you know, there's some real cowboys out here. Woohoo! Yippee ki yay! You know. But when I got here, it became crystal clear. All the things that he'd done in my life. God putting the events in my life to keep me from going to New York City. Because if I'd have went to New York City, we would never would have been together. We never would have had what we have. And, and I, I come to the place where I realized that my field was Kansas City. And God had me take this field for every one of you because God put us together to do this work. You know, and I don't want to say this wrong. In 1976 and 77, when I came to Kansas City, there wasn't one church in this city, there wasn't one pastor who took a stood on the King James Bible. There wasn't one church, one pastor, one any place that, I mean, they may have used it, but they didn't know why they were using it. And now for 48 years, me and my family have just bought this field. And you've got churches out there that, uh, that have a King James Bible today. Most of those, those guys are out of my ministry. And you know what? And you can find this is true. There's a lot of people there that don't like me. And there's a list that's a lot bigger than probably the ones that do. But even the ones that don't like me will tell you, I learned my Bible from Bob Alexander. You know why? Because I considered a field and I bought it. And I bought it for you. Every one of you. And I bought it for your kids. And I had learned through that 48 years what it means to stand alone sometimes. I learned, I learned, you know, I learned what it means. I wrote the discipleship lessons that we use here about 1978. And I did it with 20 people in my class. I started out as a youth pastor but then I wound up moving into the college and career, the singles, because I knew that's where the future was and that's where I wanted to be. The guy that had that class was a clown. He was an idiot. He didn't do anything with them, didn't know nothing about the Bible. But he built a little social club. And I, and I know everybody had feelings about me going in there because of the way I was. And it was such a nicety-nicey little place. And it was running about 80 people. And, uh, you know, I know Pastor Dollar was so gracious and he was so good to me, but I know that he was probably a little worried because within the first four weeks, I had it down to 40. Because <laughs> I went in with an intensity. I wasn't going to play the game with him. I wasn't going to pass out underwear with lace on it. You were going to get in or you're going to get out. And I knew that to build something, sometimes you've got to separate some things out. But they, were, they would give me these little notes. I had this classroom, it was called the varsity class back then. They had a blackboard behind it and on the pulpit up there, I went up to get something and one of the ladies in the, my class, I think I knew who it was, but she put a little note up there and she says, Brother Bob, we are so glad that you're here to, in our class, but if you would, feed the sheep. <laughs> feed the sheep. We love you. Put it in my pocket. Went into my office, did a little thing, places, got all the people in it, walked up on the pulpit, took a note out, took the piece of chalk. You can't feed dead sheep. All you can do is skin them. Now, if you have your Bibles this morning, let's get going. 
You know, that thing went down to probably 30 before it got going the other way. And by five or six years later, and you guys know it was 15, 1600. And those discipleship lessons are all over the world today in 20 different languages. And uh, it's because that you, with me, we decided to buy this field. And the Bible says, with the fruit of her hand, she planted the vineyard. You know, in my study of church history, I found men who understood this great concept of Proverbs chapter 31, verse 16. And it had served me very well because there were many times that I was by myself. I was in a town where nobody else believed the Bible. I was in a town where I was being criticized for it. And every time I'd teach something, you get the Calvary crowd up here from Calvary Bible College, which was, a, you know, it was an apostate pit back then. It's even an apostate bottomless pit today. But all the people were coming from there, and uh, it was just a real war over the Bible. And uh, it was guys like this that really carried me through. And, you know, it, it, it showed me that God's people today should absolutely be ashamed of ourselves. We really should. It, it showed me that these guys back there are never allowed and let anything stop them from doing what God had called them to do the work. And I, 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 I give it all the respect in the world, and I'm not being careless when I say this. Please don't misunderstand me. But in most Christians' lives, the pandemic has shut down anything anybody's going to do. Everybody's afraid to death they're going to get this or they're going to get that. In our country, and I'm telling you right now, it is not going to change. And I know, I know, I know. I hear all the whining all the time. And I'm, I'm somebody who's telling you to be smart about it, please. I mean, uh, I, 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 you respect it, but you never fear it. And yet I look at where we're at today, and I look at Christianity. And I know you follow the law, you follow the rules. I'm not advocating disobedience in any way, shape, or form. Uh, you follow the law, Romans 13. I'm down the line with it, which, which we have done, and they're allowing us now to have what we have. But I thought about August Spondenberg and Count Zindendorf, who back in the 1700s, he had a large parcel of land in Prussia. And he created a school to train missionaries which became known as the Moravian Missionaries. They had a coat of arms that had a motto on it. And it had a, an ox with a, a plow and an altar with a motto in Latin underneath that said, ready for either. And their mindset was that I am ready to plow the fields for God or I'm ready to lay my life down on the altar for God. And those guys got a one-way ticket. They were Moravian Missionaries who sold themselves into the black market slave never to be free again so they could be a missionary to the black. You know why? Because they understood the real meaning of Black Lives Matter. Not like it is today. We've lost some things. I think of David Brainerd. He lived around 17, 18, 18, 17, 47. He died when he was 29 years old. And he was a missionary to the American Indians up in the, north, up in the Northeast. He died at 29 of tuberculosis that he had contacted from the Indian tribes. And he'd go under the pine trees up there in New York uh, in the woods and he'd pray for hours for the American Indians, coughing up blood. And he had such a fevered body that a fever would melt holes in the snow. 
and he'd pray under those pine trees, and he'd just pray and pray, and he never won a convert one time in his life. And people would look at him and say, see what you get? You got tuberculosis by messing with those dirty Indians. You should have stayed in England. You should have stayed in town. You should have never put your life in jeopardy by doing something so foolish. You know what his problem was that you don't have? He considered a field and he bought it. He wrote a diary, which we have in our bookstore back there, called the Diary of David Brainerd. And he may never want a soul to Christ, but William Carey, the great missionary to India, read it, and it motivated him to go win all of India to Christ. Robert McShane read it, and he went to the nation of Israel and the Jews. Henry Martin read it, and he went to India. And even today, people are motivated by that young man who laid it on the line and went for him to the American Indians, fully knowing what the exposure was. I think of John Patton. He went to the New Herbities Islands in the 1800s. He spent 50 years on that island and never went home again. His wife and him went to the Herbities Islands under the warning that all the other missionaries that went there had been killed and been eaten by cannibals. But he went. His wife and infant son died on the mission field. I'm sure there were his friends and his families that says, are you crazy for going to a place like that? Taking your new wife and raising a family in a land where there's cannibals and there's unchecked disease? Are you nuts? No, he wasn't nuts. He considered a field and he bought it. I think of Robert Moffat. These are the men. They're all I had in that time of my life. I think of Robert Moffat, 51 years in Cape Town, South Africa. Lost three of his kids on the mission field. Endured terrible hardships. And I'm sure that there were times in his life, and I'm sure there were the brethren like Job's life that criticized him and, and, and castigated him. You should know better to put your children into that kind of danger. You should, you should never have went to a place where there were no doctors, no hospitals, that if you got sick, you had to travel five days to get to a civilization place where you could get any kind of help. What is wrong with you? How stupid are you to do that? He considered a field, and he bought it. I, I think a Hudson Taylor went to China. Lost his wife and two kids. They died of cholera. You see, these guys went to places where they didn't get tested for the disease. There was no respirators. There was no federal government bailing them out. There was no hospitals they could go to. There was no doctors that could treat them. But they had a burning desire inside of their heart that God, who laid it on the line for them, they were willing to lay it on the line for Him, and they considered a field, and they bought it. He died in 1905, but when he died, after losing a wife and two children, 
He had built 205 mission stations, 849 missionaries, and over 125,000 professing Chinese. He considered a field and they bought it. Considering the field without the intensity of buying it will be a failure every time because it's going to cost you something to do it. I think of David Livingston, 30 years in Africa. He traveled 1,400 miles into the interior of Africa where no white man had ever set foot. He was gone for so long that the New York Times sent a reporter out to find him by the name of Henry Stanley. And Henry Stanley is searching all over Africa for him and he tells the story in his book that he came around this little jungle trail into a clearing and there was David Livingston, which comes up with a little coin phrase that nobody really uses anymore but used to be big back in the day, Dr. Livingston, I presume, because he was the only white man there. He died in 1873 after... 30 years in Africa. Henry Stanley was so impressed by him that he gave up the job at the New York Times, became a missionary to finish his work. And today, if you would go to England in Westminster Abbey, you'll find the grave of David Livingston. He's buried. The natives boxed him up and shipped him, and they shipped him back to England where he was from, and they buried him in Westminster Abbey where he's at today. But before they did that, the natives took a knife and they cut out his heart and they buried it in Africa because he bought the field. Let me ask you something this morning. If you died today and they cut your heart out, where would they bury it? Hooters? Some bar and grill? Where would they bury it? And the list is endless. They considered a field and they bought it and I'm telling you, they faced the opposition of not only where they went, but they faced the opposition of God's people just like that are around today that thought it was so, so wrong to put their family in harm's way. And yet God's people today, you'll consider a new car. You'll consider a new job. You'll consider a new house, new boat, new motorcycle, a new dress, new pair of shoes, but not one time will you ever consider a field and buy it. And that's because when you buy a field, there's work involved. When you buy a field, you have to put it all on the line. You know why? Because he put it all on the line for you, and anything less than that will be a failure. And the Bible says he considered a field. And when I came to Kansas City, I considered a field, and I bought it. But I learned some things. I learned that an empty field, even though you just bought it, isn't any ready to plant to grow anything on it. And there's five things you've got to do to get that thing ready to be planted. And the first thing I had to do was clear the field. I had to get rid of the rocks. I had to get rid of the trees. I had to pick up all the trash, all the beer cans, the cigarette butts. I had to get rid of the snakes, the weeds. And a lot of sweat and tears to get ready to plant something. 
You see, you get the idea, you just come in and it all happens. No, when you buy the field, you got, it's a raw field. It ain't ready for anything. You got to go through a process, a work, when you buy it. You got to clear the field. You've got to get all the obstacles out of it so that when you do the next step, which is plow the field, you can get something done. And I thought of old Jeremiah when he got the commission of God in Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 7 through 10, how that related to what I had to experience. And he says, but, but the Lord said unto me, Say not, I am a child, for thou shalt go to all that I shall send thee. And whatsoever I command thee, thou shalt speak. Be not afraid of their faces, for I am with thee to deliver thee, saith the Lord. Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said unto me, Behold, I have put my words in thy mouth. See this day that I have set thee over the nations and over the kingdoms. Now here it comes. You want to you wanna clear the field? Here it is. Root out, pull down, and to destroy, and to throw down. Then you can build and plant. Got to clear the field. Now, once you clear the field, then you're able to sow the field, plow the field. And you've got to plow those rows straight. And you've got to, stro- you got to plow them deep. And then the third thing you do after you get that field plowed is you've got to sow the seed in that field. You start teaching them the Bible, discipleship one, discipleship two. You have a Bible study where they can ask whatever questions they want that isn't cans so you can control it. You give them the freedom to be who they are. You look at every person who has a glimmer of leadership and you help develop it. You realize who has the determination and who doesn't. You realize, you realize uh, what it takes to get the job done. And you know, you, Sunday morning, uh, institute, church history, uh, people ministry, Everything you do, the website, everything you do, you do to sow the seed in the field that you just plowed that you spent half your life clearing because you bought it. And you buy it with the same intensity that Christ bought the world. Then the fourth thing is you have to protect the field. Matthew chapter 13, verse 7 says that the thorns sprung up and choked the Word of God. There'll be thorns that will come into your life that want to take the very Word of God from you. Song of Sodom in chapter 2, verse 15 talks about the foxes that spoil the vine. There will be men that come into this church or any other church that want to teach you bad doctrine or teach you heresy. They'll want to come in. We don't have a lot of that here, but you can see it from time to time. They'll come in and they want some great do teaching that nobody ever had in their life and they want to propagate it in here and they look at this as a sounding board. No, it's not a sounding board, but it'll certainly get your head cut off very quickly. So you protect your people. You don't let the charismatics get in here. You don't let the predestination crowd get in here. You don't let the goofballs get in here. You don't let the people who got some kind of weird thing get in here. You protect what God has given you. You run the foxes out. You keep the weeds to a minimum. Men will creep in with damnable heresy, and you've got to protect what God has given you. And that's probably the favorite part of all this, is just protecting you. 
And I've given you before, we've talked about the six marks of a heretic. I learned that through coming through and watching these things by buying the field. And then the fifth thing, you have to look after it. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 1 says that we have to stand on our watch. We looked a couple of weeks ago in Proverbs 31 about opening our mouths and we talked about speaking up for those who can't speak up for themselves and standing up for them. And then the righteous judgment that you take care of them. And all this is done by the work of your hands. And it's a work of a labor of love for anybody who considers a field and then buys it and then buys it with the same intensity that Christ bought the field. And all along the way, almost 50 years now, I look for just one kind of person. Hundreds of them have been through those doors back there. Only a handful will ever stay. I think the equation there is one of the thousand from Song of Solomon chapter 1. Doesn't matter to me if they're male or they're female. I look for God's people who can do a hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ that knows what it takes to buy a field, who will make the self-sacrifice, who their life won't all be about them, who won't get their nose bent on a joint when something doesn't go their way, who are going to stand strong, be trained hard because they want to be hard. I'm not interested in building a megachurch. I'm interested in building a regimental combat team, and you better go find out what that definition means. Men and women who have the courage willing to always be seeking any opportunity. My fellow laborers who aren't the middle of the ground, who aren't here for a while and then gone, they, they, they consider the field with me and they say, you know what, Bob, I'm going to buy it with you. And what you do is you expand the field. Who always with me will be willing to buy and pay the price for this field that we have to pay. I taught you, I taught you for years, as I said, to take care of your own household first, and then we move out from there. Now, the second part of that verse 16 says, with the fruit of her hand, she planteth a vineyard. Now, we buy the fruit of our hands. We work the field. We clear the field. We sow the field. We plow the field. A plant a fruitful vineyard. And you do this, and this is where the work comes in. This is where the labor comes in. This is where it all comes down where the rubber beats the road. You do it one person at a time. You never get in a hurry. You never require them to be something they're not. You put up with their imperfections. You put up with their stupidity. You put it up with their mistakes and say, how do you learn to do that? Oh, you just look and see how God did it with you. Not hard. One family at a time. One couple at a time. You know, and, 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 God, and God just does it in, in, in incredible ways. I, I kid Karen and Leland back there. Karen, you remember, what, two years ago, before camp, you called me on the phone out of nowhere, and we had the greatest conversation. And you know, and you asked me to have somebody get in back in touch with you, and I think it was 30 seconds, and I had somebody call you. And I knew at that point in the time what God was doing. God, God puts us together just like. And then look what He did. He used it to bring Jim and Kathy back where we needed to be. 
They don't come any finer. But that's how it works, one couple at a time, you know, and, and they just come in. And it doesn't matter where they're at. You don't worry about that. You matter. I never worry about where you're at. I'm only concerned about where you want to go. I got the wherewithal to get you where you want to go. The question is, do you want to go there? Consider a field. Buy it. My job is to create areas for you to grow, help you through all of the issues that you have to struggle with. I build in your life a stairway to heaven. I think that's a love song, but it's reality. It's a good Bible doctrine. You start here. I teach you the Bible. You go up a couple levels, and then you're here. And then you teach you some more Bible, and you come up in here, and pretty soon you grow up into him. And I learned that God will bring to me, and I know you got to wade through a hundred to find two. That's okay. The two is worth the hundred. God will bring to you those men and women who have need of God's truth. And many, you know, have, I get it, many have been abused and used by churches and pastors. I understand that. Some have looked for the truth of God's word for a long time and couldn't find it. And then God, when he was ready for you, gave you what you needed that he brought you here. Some of you young guys got saved and never looked back. Some will come and the word of God will you allow to change your life completely and some will come and will change absolutely nothing at all. But in spite of all that, you consider a field and you buy it. And with the fruit of your hands, you plant a vineyard. You know, I've never... I've never, I've learned to look, never look on the outside of things. First uh, Samuel 16, 7 makes it clear that you always look on the inside. And you can learn that through years and years, you learn where the quality investments are very quickly. But no matter what people's issues are, you create a place of safety. A place that they can safely bring their families. A place that they can safely Watch their families grow. A place of comfort, a place of truth, a place of warmth, a place of love, a place of understanding. You hurt no one, but you can't ever stop people from hurting themselves because they don't want to do what's right. But everybody gets the same chance based on the truth of the Word of God and what you do with the work and how you consider to buy the field. You know, back in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the trees back there in the garden of God, if you study it, they were all fruit-bearing trees that had yielding seed. In other words, you had an apple tree, 20 years later you'd have 20 apple trees because the apples fall down, the seeds regenerate themselves. And, and of course, uh, uh, you know, it's a thing where uh, it it's, it's becomes the picture of the yielding seed. And Luke chapter 8 verse 11 is the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, we're told that we were born again with incorruptible seed. It's inside you. And so what happens? You're like the tree. This church is, is, the, this church is the new version of the garden of God, the vineyard. And they're all trees. And if you're saved, you have the spirit of God in you, the seed of the word of God. And you have that seed within yourself that we keep expanding the field, expanding the vineyard, growing new trees. 
one family at a time, one person at a time. And the work of every pastor, as far as I am concerned, and the work of every church is to consider a field and then buy it. But when you buy it, you buy it. For me, there's no retiring. There's no quitting. There's no, I'm too tired, I don't want to do this anymore, though you do get tired. There's no getting out. Ecclesiastes 8, 8 made it very clear to me that there's no discharge from this war. And when God saved you and put you into the ministry, he puts you in for the duration. And the duration is the rapture of the church. And my philosophy is simple. God puts you in, let God take you out. And you consider a field and you buy it with the work of his hands, with his family. You take a worthless field and you clear it, you plow it, you sow it, you protect it, you take care of it, and God gives the increase. And as God provides the seed-yielding trees, that field grows and expands and reaches out and touches the world. God's plan for your life, His work, that he started Philippians 1.6 and today should be, we should be walking Ephesians 2.10 in those works. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works that we walk therein. Now this woman in Proverbs chapter 31 with all the virtue of God, just like many of you, does the work of God with her hands. <clears throat> with a willing attitude of heart to seek and to serve. And God will bring her to a place in her life and lay that field before her and the greatest decision you'll ever make in your life as a child of God after you're saved will be looking at that field and consider it and say, I'll buy it or I won't buy it. And the reason why most God's people will never consider it and buy it is that simply the cost is too great. This country, it's done, folks. Mark it on your calendar. 2020 was the year that it all changed. And it ain't ever going back the way it was. We're seeing this country unravel at the seams at every turn. Fear is running rampant through the streets. It's running rampant through every aspect. If it isn't disease, then it's the insocial justice. If it isn't that, it's the politicians in Washington. It's nobody cares about anything that means anything anymore. And it's all, it's all a smokescreen. It's all putting this world into such a disarray that down the line someplace, very quickly, I hopefully, we're taken out. And then one man stands up and says, I've got all the answers to solve your problems. Have at it, pal. But I'm telling you right now, the work remains. He said, occupy till I come. We have a job to do. I started it in 1976. And I know, I tell you, I, I get it. I understand. I, I, am, I, am not, I am the least perfect pastor you have ever met in your life. But I understand the principles involved, and I know this. 
You only get out of something what you are willing to put into it. Whether it's me in this church or you in this church. And though years and years and years ago, almost 48 years now, when I stood on that balcony, up there where you guys go to work at Cerner, I looked out there and said, I, I, I'm going to buy it. And I did. And God brought us together. And if you think nothing else to thank God for, if where you're at with the Word of God and what you have, you just thank the Lord that I was smart enough not to go to New York but to come to Kansas City. Because that's why we're all here today. And my intensity, my drive, the way I do things, maybe you understand a little better now. It's simply because we have a job to do, and I am, I'm like the Marine Corps. I'm looking for a few good men. And there's not many out there. They all get their nose bent at a joint. They all get their feelings hurt. They're always looking for something else. They're all middle of the rotors. Sorry. I love you. I'll help you. I appreciate you. I'll pray for you. Stay out of my foxhole. You'll get me killed. The work remains. We need to stay focused. We need to stay awake. We need to stay alert. We need to stay on that wall and keep your watch. Here's the problem with America, and I'll leave you with this. We never get to the lowest common denominator in anything that we look at in most cases. We see a person that has a problem in their life, and we think that's the problem. No, that's the symptom. Get down deeper, you'll find a real problem. That's true of everything. And we look at America, and we want to blame everybody. Uh, you know, the blacks want to blame the whites. The whites want to blame the blacks. Or the, the Republicans want to blame the Democrats. The Democrats want to blame the Republicans. You know, everybody wants to blame everybody. And the bottom line is simply this. It's simply this. What you're seeing in America right now didn't happen in the last 50 years because it's a true statement of history, and I told the kids in Institute this yesterday, in the history of the world, no country ever survived 200 years after they walked away from the Word of God as a country. They may have went on as a country, but they went on in total respite and anarchy into an absolute cesspool. And America dumped the Word of God 140-some years ago. And what you're seeing today is not the Republicans' fault. It's not the Democrats' fault. It's not the black people. It's not the white people. I'll tell you what it is. It's God's people refusing to consider the field that God gave them and then you buying it. And this is the end result. The field's the world. He died for the world, and then he asked us to take a piece of it. And we simply said, no, thank you. So now we got a world that was paid for by the blood of Christ that we as his people should be cultivating the A field, and we just do nothing with it. And this is why we have the problems that we have. The Word of God is salt. It's a preservative. And it'll preserve your family, it'll preserve your life, it'll preserve any country. The moment you, your family, your kids, or a country walks away from it, you're in trouble. And we are in trouble today because of that very thing. It isn't anybody's fault but ours. It's pastors who get in that pulpit and won't preach the truth. It's Christians who get in churches and won't do a thing. 
It's God's people who are fat and sassy and lazy and just want to do their own thing. And it's God's people today that won't lay anything in their life on the line. Old Mel Sabaka preached a message years and years and years and years ago. One of the best messages I've ever heard. It was a message on take off that mask. And it was a message that behind Christians were wearing a mask and you couldn't see who they really were. That is so true. And God's people need to take off the mask. We got a job to do. We got a work to do. This is not a time to be hiding under your bed. This is a time to look at the men like John Patton, Livingston, and all of these men that went out there and put their life on the line because they considered a field and bought it. Doesn't mean you do something stupid. But the worst stupid thing you could ever do is not to consider a field and buy it. So that's my verse. That's what got me here, kept me here, and keeps me going every day of my life. That verse is honestly, by the grace of God, through the power of God, no credit to myself, that verse in my life is why you're here today. And the only question you've got to answer, are you going to help me buy it? Or are you going to buy something else? And this was a good day for most everybody to come back because you needed to hear this. And as far as I'm concerned, everything after Proverbs and this is just a byword. It's just an end to a means. It's a climax, anticlimactic, because the greatest verse in all of Proverbs and the greatest verse in my life is Proverbs 31:16. She considereth the field and buyeth it, and with the work of her hand she planteth a vineyard. That's what it takes for every one of us to get the work of God done. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Father, we do thank you and praise you today for the Lord Jesus. And I thank you, Lord, for the Word of God. I thank you for allowing me to take a personal side to this. Maybe they'll better understand now, Lord. Maybe not. I don't know. But maybe they'll see why I do the things I do the way I do. But, Lord, we have to be hard. We have to be tough. And there's no room in my ministry for people who can't hold the line that are going to get their nose bent out of joy and get offended who you can't train the way they need to be trained. And I know I'm in the wrong century. I get that. But it's where I'm at. And I still believe there's men and women in this city who want to be soldiers for Jesus Christ and want to be a, have a hardness, to endure a hardness of Jesus Christ. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for all that you've given us, for all the great people here, for all the wonderful things that, Lord, you provided for us that we don't deserve. And I'm the last one who deserves any part of this. But I thank you for allowing me to be part of it. And Lord, we love you. Thank you. And I know the truth, Lord, all, no matter what man does what, it all goes back to the Lord Jesus Christ and the Word of God. And that's where we leave it today. Thank you. We lay all this at your feet because without you, there'd be nothing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs>